Man, that music makes me want to just tap my feet, dance, and it's such a happy song. Well, thank you for being here. My name is Tim Park, and it is just an honor to, to worship together with you this morning. For those worshiping online, a special welcome to you. Well, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1, as you make your way there, just want to remind us that Paul wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were scattered throughout this region known as Galatia. And he was writing because there was a crisis, a crisis of faith. And so he wrote this letter to encourage his fellow Christians to not go back into the life that they once lived, that they had come out of, that they were freed from because of Christ. And so he wrote this to encourage them to stand strong in their faith. And so he wrote this in chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This morning, we're going to talk about strongholds, and specifically freedom from strongholds. Now, some might ask, well, what's a stronghold? Here's how we're going to define stronghold as it relates to the follower of Jesus Christ. A stronghold is a mindset, value system, or thought process that hinders a person from using his or her full potential for Jesus Christ. Once again, a stronghold, it's a mindset, a value system, a thought process that hinders a person from using his or her full potential for Jesus Christ. You see, God desires every single one of us to reach our full potential as his children. Now, parents, every parent wants their child to reach their full potential. That's how it is with God. We as his children, he desires that we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and to grow to our full spiritual potential. The thing, though, is at times we are hindered by an unhealthy mindset, an unhealthy value system, possibly an unhealthy thought process. And that prevents us from reaching that full potential. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is what he wrote in verses 3 and 4. He said this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. It's the only time in the Bible we see the word stronghold here in 2 Corinthians. Now, in the original Greek language, the word stronghold, it referred to a fortified place. So I want you to picture that in your minds right now. A stronghold is a fortified place. You might picture these big, tall, thick walls that present barriers. Now, originally, the word stronghold, it could be used both positively or negatively based upon the context. And here, in this context, Paul uses it in the negative sense. God doesn't want us to be held captive 
by those things that separate us from him, that prevent us from living a spirit-filled life. We have been set free. Christ died on the cross. And when we gave our lives to him, our lives were set free. And so Paul exhorts his fellow Christians, don't go back to that yoke of slavery. Don't go back to those vices. Don't go back to those previous mindsets, value systems that once held you captive. Today you're going to hear from one of our church members. In fact, you're going to hear from one of our elders. He's going to share with us how he experienced freedom from the strongholds that held him captive for years. You see him up here regularly playing the guitar. You see his creative artwork every week on the screen. You see his visionary designs throughout this remodeled worship center. I've had the pleasure of serving together with Nick and also his wife, Evelyn. You saw Evelyn up here earlier give the welcoming announcements. So today's kind of like a, the tag team match today. And so uh, Evelyn welcomed us here, and then she's going to turn it over to her husband to encourage us. And Nick's going to come up here in a moment, and he's going to share with us how God freed him from the strongholds that held him captive for so long. And I trust that you're going to be encouraged by what you hear. I know that you're going to be inspired by what God has done through the journey that Nick has been on. Nick is a humble servant. He is someone who loves Jesus. And he loves our church. And so I'm looking forward to hearing what God has to say through Nick. Uh, before Nick comes up here, would you join me in prayer? I want to pray for Nick. I want to pray that God would use him in a mighty way this morning. Father, we thank you for the special opportunity that we have to hear from a humble servant, Lord. Thank you for Nick. Thank you for Evelyn. Thank you that they love you. Thank you for their love for our church. And thank you, Lord, for the journey that, that Nick has been able to experience and one that has had many bumps along the way. And thank you, God, for your faithfulness in his life. Thank you for freedom from strongholds. And I know, God, that we are all going to be blessed by what we hear. And so use Nick as your mouthpiece today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we hear it for Nick Gonzalez? Well, good morning. Um, I'm very excited to get up here and share my story and it really isn't my story, it's, it's God's story, and um, how he was able to um, deliver me from the strongholds that I was struggling with, as Pastor Tim had mentioned, for many years of my life. But before I share a little bit about myself, I wanted to first start off by telling you a little bit about my parents and what they experienced growing up, um, and how that played out in my life. Uh, my mother grew up in an alcoholic home. Both her parents drank, both engaged in in affairs, extramarital affairs, and um, both neglected, because they were involved in these things, they, they neglected their children. 
And my mom was the oldest out of seven siblings. And so my mom had to grow up pretty fast. And so she had to raise them. And so she helped. <laughs> so she had to get in and, and grow up pretty fast because she had to raise them. And my father and his siblings were the product of an affair that my, gran- my grandfather had. And so at the age of around three, my, his biological mom called my grandfather up and said, come get your children. I don't want them anymore. And so my grandfather took him into his home and his wife raised them. And, uh, and she did her best she, she could to raise them as her children. But obviously because you know, they were a result of my grandfather's infidelities, you can imagine there's already a detach from this. There's always a, a resentment that's already there. So my dad grew up not being wanted by both these women in his life, his, his natural mother and this um, lady who took him in. And so on top of that, my grandfather also was an alcoholic who was a, could be emotionally and ver- verbally abusive at times. And so my mother, both my mother and my father, grew up in, a, in, in an environment where they didn't have parents to nurture them and to help them raise them up to be who that, obviously, the, the, to their potential that they could be. So they grew up in a lot of brokenness. And, um, and that was tough for my parents, especially for my mom. My mom grew up with, she had a lot of anger in her and a lot of resentment and a lot of bitterness in her. And so um, the opposite effect that I had had on my, my, actually my father, I think because my father was the way that, my grandfather was the way that he was, that my father grew up very shy, very, very insecure and very, um, very gentle, very, very soft. So it had the opposite effect on him, but it, it affected him in a way where he wasn't able to lead us as a, as a strong father figure for us. He wasn't, he was limited in that capacity to be able to, to be that for us. And, um, at times, my mother could be quite cold and inaffectionate towards us. I don't have a lot of memories of my mom telling us that she loved us or hugging us and, um, and, and pouring into our lives. And I don't have those memories. In fact, I can recall being alone a lot as a child. And um, I was alone quite a bit. And most of my memories I have of my mother was seeing her angry. And so when she would discipline us, it would usually be done out of anger or it would be done in an excessive manner. And it, can quite, it, can get quite, it, it got quite physical at times. And it wasn't ever reinforced with love or an understanding of, hey, this is why you're being disciplined. And of course, if it was done in an angry manner, it, it could be quite um, traumatic for a child. And so the impact that it had on me growing up is I, I truly believe that my mother hated me. Like, I didn't feel like I was wanted in that home, and I didn't feel loved. And I know that every child is different. Like, my brother, my younger brother, we both grew up in that same situation. He was able to somehow manage and not let those things affect him in life. But for me, it was different. I I mean, I felt like I truly needed my mother's love. Like, I needed her to hug me and 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 to let me know that she loved me and that I was wanted in that home. <clears throat> but that's not how the way things worked out. And, um, yeah, so I, 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 how did that impact me? How did that play out for me? So, well, I became a very unhappy child, as you can imagine. You know, I was very withdrawn, very shy, insecure, and I think I was depressed. I'm pretty sure, you know, um, I'm not sure how old you have to be before you experience what depression is, but as a child, if I look back, I'd say I would recognize that as depression. Um, 
it is sad because a childhood is meant to be a time of joy. It's meant to be a time of happiness and innocence. But it just wasn't that for me. And so at the age of six, how can one really deal with those kind of heavy emotions? How can, how can, how can a child even begin to cope with those kind of experiences? And so as I got older, I became bitter and angry. The sadness kind of was replaced with this, with this anger and bitterness. And um, it wasn't like an explosive physical kind of anger, but it was very deep within. It was just hidden deep within the surface. And so the way that played out in, in my life, and I just began to really grew, grow and to resent my parents, specifically my mother, because of the anger that I experienced, for, that I was experiencing from her. And so there was definitely like not trust in that relationship. Like I didn't trust them to speak into my life. I, I felt like they hadn't earned it or like they haven't really put in the work to be able to speak into my life because a lot of so much of what was lost in my early years of, of, of not having the nurturing and not having the, uh, the one-on-ones and everything like that. So when they would begin to reinforce structure in my life, I rejected that. I, didn't, I wasn't going to let them tell me how to live. And so by the time I got into the seventh grade, I started to act out in, um, in different ways. So at the age of 13, I started smoking cigarettes. And by the time I got into eighth grade, I was already smoking pot. And by the time I got to my junior year, I began drinking. And it, was, it started off as, you know, over the weekend kind of stuff, but eventually led to drinking before school and then drinking during school hours. Um, and so by the time I got into my senior year at high school, my life consisted of drinking, partying, and, and chasing women. That, those were the pursuits of my life. That was my value system. And so my parents didn't really teach me or prepare me for life, in a sense. You know, there was no like, hey, you're going to go to college after high school. You're gonna, you know, you want to prepare for those things, and you want to have this mindset that you're going to grow and, and, and do something with your life. There was never any of that. And so instead of focusing on graduating and preparing for a future and thinking about college, I was just focused on these things, these pursuits. And I have to say that, like, pot, it, the pot and drinking, the reason why those things were appealing to me was not so much that they made you feel good, but they helped me escape and they numbed me to the pain that I was really feeling and like the reality of like, man, things are horrible at home and my relationship with my mom is horrible. And so these things just helped to numb that and substitute what I was, what I was trying to find at home. And so these drugs kind of just, or these things kind of helped me find those things. So, and I remember it must have been about a month before graduation, and I was just thinking out of the blue, and I turned to my classmate sitting next to me, and I, and I asked him, I, I go, hey, you know, we're graduating soon, our graduation night is coming up, um, I don't want to get drunk, I don't want to get stoned, what else do you have out there? What, what else out there is to try? And he said, well, have you tried Crystal? And uh, now I've watched enough TV, and I've watched enough movies to know that like heroin and cocaine, like those are the bad boys, right? Like you don't, you don't mess with those things. Those things, will, those things have the potential to kill you. So I knew to stay clear of those things. But, but Crystal, like, well, I hadn't heard of that one before. And so I thought to myself, well, I tried all these things. Uh, they didn't kill me. And uh, it's not cocaine and it's not heroin. So how bad could it be? And so a few weeks later, my friend, you know, we met up at school and he gave me the meth. And it was crystal meth. And he and he crushed it up into a white line, and, and he handed me a dollar bill insinuating that I snorted. And so 
Like I didn't even hesitate. You know, I didn't even really think twice. Like, what is this that I'm putting into my body? It just, I was so curious to know what this thing did. And again, like I trusted my friend. I didn't think he was going to give me something that would actually potentially have the, the potential to ruin my life. And so after a few minutes later, when that high hit me for the first time, I knew I was in love. And I know that's kind of a weird word to use for a drug because of the nature of a drug. But, but honestly, I felt so, that's how strongly I felt about this drug and how it made me feel. And so instant, instantly, like I had instant happiness. I had instant confidence, instant energy, extreme focus, and like an, overwhel- an overwhelming sense of well-being. And the reason why those things were like big for me is because that I didn't have those things. I, didn't, I wasn't experiencing those things in life. I was miserable. I was, I was broken. And so to ha- all of a sudden to be able to have those things at, a, at, a, at, the, at the switch of a light and experiencing all those things at once. So for me, it was like as if somebody turned on the light for the first time and I was seeing for the first time. So that's kind of what it was like for me. And so for those of you who may not know what crystal meth is, it's a very strong stimulant, addictive, highly addictive drug. And the reason why it is all those things is because what it does is it produces dump dopamine in the brain and it just dumps it into, into the area where your pleasure centers receive. That's how you experience pleasure and joy and all these things. It's because of the produce of dopamine in your brain. But what methamphetamine does is it produces massive amounts of dopamine and just dumps it and fills it in your brain. So I think 80% time times the amount that your brain can produce naturally. So that's, if you can imagine, that's what it's like um, when you get high from methamphetamine. So, so when that first hit of meth entered into my system for the first time, and I just remember saying like, wow, I've always wanted to feel like this. This is the way that I've wanted to feel all my life. And um, I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. And though I knew deep down inside, as I, as I said those words, I just remember thinking, like, I knew that deep down inside, like, like that was wrong to even have that mindset, like, that, like, my happiness could not be fine in some kind of drug. But, but I didn't care because of what it was, how it made me feel. And, you know, it, to the point where I was just ready to chase this feeling for the rest of my life. And I think it's kind of important to, to hear because talk about addiction or strongholds and, and certain things because I think a lot of, nobody like plans out to be um, a drug addict. I think that it is a, a progressive downhill slope of because either you're trying to fulfill something in your life that you're lacking and that you were created for, whether it be a lack of love or just these things, you know, and this drug, these drugs provide these things. And so that's why I think for me, it was very, it became very addictive for me because of what it, what, it, what it was giving me at that time. And so at the age of 18, I became a full-blown addict. And it was my one consuming compassion. It was my one consuming passion. And it's all I ever thought about. And at first it was fun. And it was pretty, it seemed fun, I would say. And it was pretty manageable. You know, I was able to party a lot. I had a lot of, of friends. I, I could hold a job. And yet, and, and still, while attending art college, and in fact, it seemed to enhance all these things. I was able to manage my life using and, 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 and juggling all these things of life. So the first few years, things appeared to be good. But by the time I turned 21, the true nature of this drug began to show itself. Um, and I'll kind of explain like 
how my cycle was of, of use is that I, you would get high and you would stay up for three days straight, three or four days straight, and then your body just, you, you sleep, maybe for a day, and then you repeat the cycle, three or four more days you're staying up. And you repeat that cycle to either you run out of drugs or you, your body just can't handle it and you just crash. And the way the crash happens is that you would sleep for three days straight and then spend the next couple of days recuperating. And then this, again, the cravings and the mental addiction kicks in. And so that's the cycle. So I did that for about four years of my life. Um, and, I, and again, talking about the strong psychosis the drug has an effect on the brain is that I went from being a social person because the drug makes you very social to being a very withdrawn person and a very paranoid person because that's what the drug does to you after a while. It just plays tricks on your mind. Yeah, I said that right. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so what eventually happens, I couldn't hold my job. Um, I was always getting fired. I had to end up getting, dropping out of art college. And I definitely couldn't be any kind of stable, relation, stable meaning relief, relationship with women. And so I find myself doing things that I would, thought I would never, ever do. I couldn't imagine that I found myself doing these things, but I was now doing drug drop-offs, and I was driving around drug dealers to their dro doing their drop-offs, in which they paid me to do. And um, I began selling myself, um, selling meth. So I would do that to support my habit, and, and it just seemed to come natural with, with that kind of addiction where you begin selling. And... Um, and I just remember many nights where I was just hanging out in dark, seedy hotels and just being so afraid because of the lifestyle and the danger that brings and the, the people that that lifestyle attracts. And I just remember always constantly feeling afraid for my life just because you just never know either somebody might want to kill you for the money you have or the drug that you have. And so that was always a, a fear in the back of my mind. And as I, my addiction grew, um, and there was times that I didn't have money, I would steal. And steal from my, 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 my parents, and I would steal from my brothers, and obviously that didn't make things better at home. And I remember this one time that I, that I looked at my bank account, and I saw that it was just completely empty except for $20 in checking. And um, I had over, overdue car bills I had to pay, I had a college debt, I had speeding tickets out that I had to pay. And I remember just looking at that, $20, and I'm thinking, like, like, what are you doing? Like, how, how did you end up here? Like, how, how did I end up at this place, this place where I'm contemplating either I have to pay the things I need to pay for, or am I going to use this last $20 to, to buy a bag of speed? And I just remember standing, staring at that ATM, which seemed like for 10 minutes, and I eventually just withdrew the $20 and uh, bought that bag of speed. And so, as you can imagine, like, this lifestyle is just completely unmanageable. And as I watched everything that I truly loved and cared for begin to erode away. So I actually came to a point where I, where I tried to quit, where I said, like, this is enough. I've had it. <clears throat> I want to get help. And I just remember start, um, I remember when me and my friends started to use, and I remember just we would say, oh, you know, this is for fun. It's just for pleasure, you know, we'll, if it, you know, if it ever gets out of hand or if it gets too hard, we'll just walk away and we'll quit. And uh, the shock that came for me when I found that I was not able to stop and that I was not able to quit was a big eye-opener for me because um, I had trained my brain and my body to function on this and cope and manage life on this drug for four years. And so now that I'm trying to get off of it, 
and I'm not able to. And the times that I'm trying to stay sober, it's even worse because now I can't function. I feel like I can't do the things normally that I would normally do if I was sober. And so as I grew more desperate, I actually came, actually came to my father and I asked, and I just told him, I just said, Dad, you know, I'm really struggling with this. I have this addiction. And, and, and he probably knew because, like, my life was a mess. And, I mean, they, see, they can see my life. But and I just remember saying, I would like to get in a sober living home. Could you help me? And God bless my father. I think he meant well. You know, and I think what he was really afraid of was my mom because she was very explosive and she was, he was afraid how she was going to react. And so he, he just said, you don't need to go into a sober living home. You can, you can do this on yourself. You can do this by yourself. You know, you can just, you know, um, fight and, and, and work real hard. And, uh, and I just remember him kind of walking away after that. And he never really, he, like there was never ever any follow-up, like, hey, how are you doing with this? You know, there was never any follow-up. That was, that was pretty much the end of the conversation that me and my father had about that. And so what I learned from that is like, you know, uh, go figure it out on your own, you know. And so, and I remember going to my brother, who himself was doing very well, you know, and, and, I, and I asked him, could you help me get into a sober living home? And um, because you needed insurance to get into one, and I didn't have a job, so I couldn't get into one. And, uh, you know, he kept saying he would, he would. And, and uh, I think after four times, you know, of him not actually pulling the trigger on that, I just, I kind of gave up on that. And the reason why I mentioned that is because what that taught me was that, that if I couldn't go to my loved ones for help, if they weren't going to help me, then who was I going to turn to? You know, so I learned that this was something that I was going to have to learn to manage on my own, or this was something that I was going to have to solve by myself. And so at this point in my, in my life, what I did was I withdrew from people, from partying and stuff like that. And so I stopped partying and I just became very alone. And I still using meth, but it now was just me and the drug. I wasn't no longer hanging out with my friends and stuff like that. And so um, I just remember feeling so empty and, and alone. And I remember just looking up at the sky at night and just thinking and just, and just trying to just ask, just start being and ask the big questions like, what is, what is, what is life all about? What's, what's the purpose of all this? Like, what's the significance of why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing? And, um, and I just remember because the things that were once satisfying me, the, one, the, thing, the, the things that this drug was providing for me were no longer doing it for me. And so I remember just feeling so empty. And I'm reminded of, of the verse in Ecclesiastes uh, 3.11 when it says, he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also set eternity into the human heart. And so I, as these things weren't satisfying me, I believe this was God, just that empty God vacuum that God has created with that only he can fill began to just open up. And I think that that's when God began to kind of just start speaking to my heart. Now, I was brought up in a Catholic home. Uh, we went to church pretty much every Sunday. Um, my parents did teach me about morals, more or less, and they did teach us that God was important. That was pretty much the extent of what they ever taught me, you know. It, um, it was definitely not like something that was practiced in the home. Uh, we never read the Bible together as a family. I didn't see my parents reading their Bibles. I didn't see them praying. And so there was, for me, there was already this disconnect for me, like how does, how does faith and how does God actually work in life, you know? Is it, there was no practice it wasn't practical for me, like how it fit into the scheme of life. And so I just remember me, there was this time me and my mother were getting this argument. And I remember her just looking straight at me and she said, 
you need God in your life. And then she walked away. And so that was pretty much the extent of the talk that she had. So I just remember standing there and just thinking about that and just thinking, yeah, you know, I, I would like that. I, I would like God in my life. But there was no, hey, let me show you how you can have God in your life. Let me show you how that can be lived out. You know, again, it was just like, go figure it out. And again, that just taught me that I was on my own with this thing. So how does one go and find God? And so in October of 2002, my brother Jeremy, God bless his soul, he's no longer with us today, but um, he, he handed me this business card one day and he said, Nick, if you want a second chance at life, here it is. Call this man. And uh, what had happened is he had met this very successful artist. He was a commercial artist, and he worked out of his home in Hermosa Beach. And uh, he worked in films, and he designed toys, and worked in, 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 on commercials. and it, Very impressive stuff. But he also happened to be a Christian. And he also began to share with me who Jesus was and what he had been doing in his life. And up until that point, I can't ever recall ever meeting a Christian. Um, I might have worked with a couple of them at one point because I remember them talking about church and that the church they were going to was a Christian church. But that was the extent. There was never any conversation or dialogue with me about Jesus and their life and stuff like that. And so um, for me, this was, this was new. Like, I've never heard anybody talk about God like this before. And so I don't remember all that he said, I just knew that whatever he was saying had my attention. And I had a lot of questions about God and life, obviously, because of what I experienced. And um, I don't remember all the questions that I asked, but what I do remember is that he was able to answer them in a way that I felt was sufficient for me. And I, and I remember what he, the things that he was saying was making sense to me. And so... Again, like I hadn't heard anybody talk about God like that before. So I just remember the impact that it made on me. Like this man was quite different. That this, as successful as he was and all the things that he had, beautiful family, beautiful home, and yet all he can tell me was that all this was because of who, what God had done for him. And so I remember the impression that that, that made on me. And I, I became very curious like, and asked myself, like, like, could this be true? Could God be real? And could he do for me what he had done for this man? And so I continued to work for him, and um, he continued to witness to me, and uh, I was listening and receiving everything that I was saying, I was, but I was still using, you know, there was, I hadn't, made, hadn't connected the dots yet. And I just remember one, I, late one night as I came home from work, and it was probably around 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, my parents, they're headed off to work because they worked the graveyard shift, and, uh, you know, they left. And shortly after that, I was experiencing what I thought, what I believed to be, was either an overdose or a, a, a precursor to a heart attack. Because what was happening was my heart just, all of a sudden just began to race and just beat, it was like it was beating out of my chest. And then I even remembered that it was skipping beats. And I'm not sure if you've ever experienced something like that, but it's almost like somebody's taking a breath out of you. And I just began to freak out and panic and my left side went numb. I lost the color in my face. I became very pale and I became very cold, but yet I was sweating. So my body was just obviously responding to what I had been doing to my, my body for like four years. Um, and I found it very hard to breathe. And so I became very, I panicked, right? So I became very confused. And, and, and I thought even to the point where I, I mean, I couldn't even, I was having trouble walking. And so at that moment, like, 
I was hit with the, so, the very real sobering thought like that I can die at this moment. And if I was to die, that, that I would have nobody to blame but myself. And that I would have deserved it, you know, for all that I had done. It was like I was able to see for the first time everything that I had been doing in my life. And, I was, because that was, and that was a huge thing because I was always blaming. I was always blaming why I was the way that I was. It was because of my parents. I'm like this because of my parents. Or I'm using because of this and that. And so I was always blaming and I was always pointing fingers. And so for me to actually see that for the first time was, a huge, was, was huge, that I was able to see that this was a situation that I put myself in. And so, so I remember just going to my parents' room and just getting into the bed and just wrapping myself in the sheets because it was like I was just trying to hold on to life because I didn't know what the heck was going to happen to me. And I just remember just out of desperation and just coming to the point at the end of myself where I just said, God, if you're real, can you please help me? I'm so sorry for all that I've done. My life has just been, I cannot manage my life. I am just so incapable of, of managing and making in this life on my own. So if you would forgive me and save me and spare my life, that I promise that I would follow you and live for you. And so as I laid in that bed, cold and, and sweating and heart racing and wrapped in the sheets and, and with my eyes closed, I just remember these, seeing these arms just put their arms around me. And I just remember, I don't know how, I just knew that this was Jesus hugging me and, and, and comforting me. And which is kind of interesting because I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know, I mean, I knew he was the son of God. You know, I learned that in Catholic school and that, um, you know, that's pretty much the extent of him. He's the guy on the cross. And, um, but all of a sudden I was able to recognize like this was Jesus and he was coming into my life and he was comforting, comforting me, comforting me. And as I began to cry and weep and accept that, I was comforted. I, and I was, as I was comforted, my, my breathing began to normalize and um, my heart began to calm down and return to its normal heart rate and my body temperature normalized. And so I knew instantly like, that things were different. Like I knew that I was different. I knew something had changed, but I just, you know, I didn't understand. Like I really didn't understand salvation. I didn't understand all that stuff. But all I knew is that something in me had changed. And so life for the next few months was actually quite interesting. Um, as I didn't know the first thing about Christianity and the Christian walk and what all that meant, but I figured the, nats, the next natural step for me was to start going to church. And um, my boss had been inviting me, so it just seemed like the natural step to go. He's the one that's been pouring into me and, and telling me about Jesus. Well, I'll just go where he's going. And so, he took, so we went to his church, and it, it was a church in um, Manhattan Beach called Journey of Faith which was a non-denominational evangelical church. And I remember even that just being an experience, right? Like, you know, I just, I just remember the, the, the thing that was so striking to me was that people were smiling and happy and that they would talk to you and they actually looked very sincerely happy that you were there. And so I just remember that being not what I was used to from going to church. Um, and... Uh, you know, I remember there was that awkward stage where I just like, just feeling like, is like, this is so different from what I was used to. And I just remember like, do I, do I want to be here? And I just remember God just saying, just give it a chance. Like, this is where I 
this is where I've brought you. This is where I've called you to be. So I began to continue to, ch- to go to church, and I, I read my Bible, and, and my boss had given me a New Testament, um, New Believers Bible, and it had all the, explained the application to you, explained the Bible to you. So I just remember having, uh, you know, nights where I would just, it was just me and God in the Bible, and, and I just remember those being very special times for me. Um, and as I began to grow spiritually and listening to Christian radio and, and going to church, I began to, to tell my closest friends and, and my family members about God and how Jesus saved me. And these people knew my life. They knew that this guy was a mess, and all of a sudden here he is changed and different. And, um, and uh, I remember also even being able to forgive my parents and ask them for forgiveness as well. Um, and explain to them, like, why this was happening. And, and there was also many people that I had hurt and wronged, and I was able to go to them and, and apologize for what I had done to them and explain why. You know, this is, this is what God has done for me. And, um, and through God's also, God was also giving me the opportunity to, again, like, forgive others, because I was hurt by a lot of people. And um, so I was able to call them up and just say, hey, I, I'm a Christian. This is what happened in my life. And I, and, I, and I just want to let you know that I forgive you. And it's just amazing to see what God had done just through that, the healing that took place with these broken relationships. <clears throat> and even though all these wonderful things were happening, like, I, I mean, I had no doubt about it. I was a new creation. I was born again. But that didn't automatically take away the desire to want to use. Um, because what I learned from my addiction is that my addiction was, was a symptom of something deeper. Like it was a response to something that, I, that was deep inside me that was lacking. And, um, you know, and deep down the surface, there was still a lot of pain, a lot of sadness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fears and insecurities. You know? So those things didn't go away automatically when I became a Christian. And so the thing, and if I, and if I want to be brutally honest, I... I still wanted to use, you know, I still, there's a part of me because I'm in this, this body that's still susceptible to sin. There was a part of me that wanted to go back to that lifestyle and go back to the, the old way of coping and managing. And, um, and I wish I could tell you that when I, that when that temptation came to use again, like I wish I could tell you that I was able to walk away victoriously, but that just wasn't the case. And so as I began to use again, there were some interesting things that were there be- now that weren't there before. Like now I was, I was very aware that what I was doing was going and doing something that, God, that was not pleasing to God. You know, before it's just you go and you do, and you, go and, you know. But now it was like that drive, to, that walk to my car and that drive to my drug dealer and the transferring of money, that was, there was a lot of stops. There was a lot of signals where the Holy Spirit's telling me and trying to stop me, and I was just blowing past all those things. That was new for me, because before you just go and do, you don't think twice about it. But here now the Holy Spirit's like, that was new, where now I was not able to hide or make excuses. I knew well aware, I was very aware of what I was doing. Um, and so what I began to do is, when I was convicted or Bible pastors would come and be recalled to my head is I would suppress that and I would just bury it deep down and I would ignore it and I would just not listen to it. And I really convinced myself that my, I can make this addiction fit in with my new life, like that I can have Jesus and I can have crystal meth and I can make these things work. 
And I really, believe, I really deceived myself into believing that. But I couldn't escape what I already knew. Like I knew Matthew 24 or 624 already, where it says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. But yet I convinced myself that I can make that work. I also knew 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it said that God is faithful, that he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are, te- when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. And I just remember always being at my drug dealer's house and I just looking at my car and there was the escape that God provided me. But I wouldn't. I wanted to be there. I, I, I wanted to be there. And so I was without excuse. Um, and bringing back meth into my life meant bringing back all the filth that came with it. Um, and I, you know, one of them being a heavy addiction to pornography. And I remember, like, pornography was there before the addiction, but with this addiction, it was like the appetite for that was even worse, right? And so I, I remember the shame and all that that came with it because here I was claiming to be a Christian and here I am doing these things, you know? And so, and I'm like, Christians don't struggle with these things. What's wrong with me? And so I just remember because of that, I lost the peace of assurance that I was saved. So I started questioning my salvation. I'm like, this, this is not how Christians act. Am I saved? Yeah. So there was a lot of confusion on why that was happening I, w- I probably was, I mean, I, I firmly believe that I was saved, but I sure as heck didn't feel saved. And so slowly, eventually, I stopped going to church. I stopped reading my Bible. I stopped listening to Christian radio and sermons. And for the next seven years, as a Christian, as a person who knew the saving grace of God, I lived like this, um, totally backslidden, hard heart, and I would cut myself even from, off from the people that were, trying to pour in, that were trying to pour into my life. And I remember that there was, this, there was this lady, a family friend of ours, who um, would write me letters. And so she would write me for like four years. She would, I would get a letter for her, from her maybe once a month. And she would say, you got to come to my church. They have this amazing pastor. They have this amazing youth group and, and, and college group. And we're doing this and we're doing that. And I just remember looking at those letters like, why are you, why are you mailing me? I, don't, I didn't ask you about a church I wanted to go to. I'm doing fine the way I am. And I just remember like the pride and the anger that would come. And I just look at those letters and I just toss them in the trash and be like, why is she writing me? <clears throat> and so I think she, so after about four, four years, you know, I never responded. So she just stopped writing me. And, um, but I do remember that every once in a while, I would hear God's voice break through. Like, when I was so numbed out on meth and just totally forgotten about God, his voice would break through every once in a while, and he would say, Nick, do you want to be made whole? This drug has nothing for you anymore. Why are you still here? And I would go back, revert back to making excuses. Um, God, you don't understand. This temptation is too big for me. This is, uh, this is, I've tried. This is impossible. And so, you know, that's where I was. I was going back to making excuses. And every time I made the excuses, I would hear God say, but my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Get up and walk. But it was so much easier just to cope and just use instead of fighting and getting up and, and, and tapping into the power that God has provided me, I, it was just easier for me to stay with what was familiar and stay in my sin and lay down and uh, make excuses. 
And uh, I, I knew like what I was doing was very dangerous. I knew that like, this drug had the potential to kill me. And every time I, I looked at that hit of speed, I'm like, is this going to be the one that's going to make my heart, my heart to stop beating? That's how, that's how weird, a weird place it is where you're just like, obviously the answer is, well, you just don't do it. But that's how strong addiction can be. And that's how, that's how much this drug had its hooks in me. Um, so 2009 comes and, and I have to move back into my parents' home because of the, re- the recession. You guys probably remember the recession, the, the housing market bubble and all that happened and all the jobs that disappeared. So my job went away and a lot of creative jobs went away. So I was unemployed for like a year and a half and I had to come back to my parents' house. And all I did was I locked myself in my room. I bought myself all the meth that I wanted with my unemployment checks and I just watched pornography. And that's all I did. That was my life for about a year. Um, that's all I did. Until one day, um, there was a hole in my, my, my shorts, and I was in the, the, the living room, and my parents were there, and um, the, my bag of speed that I had in my pocket fell out and was on the couch, and fell on the couch. And I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it, and I walked to the kitchen to get something, and I just remember hearing my mom say, what is this? And I turned around, and I could see her just holding up the bag of speed. And I just remember, like, Oh, just, you know, the fight or flight thing comes in and you're just like, uh, that's mine. And, you know, you can't, I can't even begin to tell you how hard that made things at home because of that. Um, but I just remember my mom, she looked at me straight in the face and she said, you know what? I don't want to hear you talking about God anymore. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. I don't want to, I mean, I don't see the fruit in your life. I don't see you going to church. I don't see you writing. I don't see you reading your Bible. And here you are. You're using drugs, and you're claiming to be a Christian. I just remember being so pierced by what my heart was so pierced by what she said because because I was so tired of being like a hypocrite. I was so tired of being a hypocrite. I was so tired of living this life of thinking that pretending that everything was okay, and so. I just was so tired of it and of the hiding and the lying. And so I remembered that lady who was writing me those cards all these years. And, um, and so I just, uh, I, um, I called her up. Her name is Leslie. And I said, tell me, tell me a bit about your church. And she did. And um, I said, well, I'd like to come this Sunday. You can imagine she's excited, right? Like she's, this lady was writing me for four years and she's like, probably just like, this guy's not going to respond. And she just stops, stops writing me. And here I, six years later, I actually respond to those letters that she's writing me. So that's a good lesson to learn. I think if, if God's placed it in your heart to call somebody or reach somebody, reach out to somebody, write somebody a letter, do it. Because you just never know like how God's going to use that in somebody's life. So I remembered Leslie and I call it, and I just remember she was so excited. And um, uh, so she brought me to church. She brought me here. This is the church that she was always writing me about, Ephraim Diamond Bar. And um, I, I, the, the, the love that I experienced from people here at this church, I can't even tell you how that played a big part in my life. Like, you have no idea that your love and your support saved my life. You, you have no idea what this church means to me. And so I... Um, I call this the e- my call, I call this my e-free sobriety program because what I did was was uh, I just everything that church, the church offered. If you know, I was at both services. I uh, I I was um, uh, any Bible study that they had, e-free university, 
whatever events, I was there. I was like, I need to fill my life with this church so that I, that I can just start replacing these old habits with, with good, godly habits. And so um, I would love to tell you that every time that I walked through those doors that I wasn't under the influence of crystal meth. That's just not the case. Like this was a process of me learning to trust people and learning to trust God. And so I don't tell you that for shock value. What I do tell, I want to tell you is that you just don't know somebody's, you don't know people's journeys. You don't know how many steps and how, and how many steps it took for that person to walk through those doors. You just don't know what people are struggling with. Um, but I still, I kept coming back. And so the last time that I used crystal meth was on November 26, 2010. And so I'll be 10 years sober. Praise God, right? Praise God. So I'll be sober 10 years uh, this November. And I'm still kind of trying to figure out how all that worked out because I can't tell you that all of a sudden one day I'm just not, like, I'm just not going to stop using. I mean, I'm just going to stop using, and that's like how it worked out. But what I do know is that I was surrounding myself with God's people. And I was doing, I was reading the, I was reading the word, and I was being renewed daily with the encouragement of, of believers and God's word and his Holy Spirit. I was where God wanted me to be. And I think with that and with the wanting to get sober and the wanting to not use anymore, I think God honored that. And I think he granted me the ability to repent of that sin and that stronghold. And so I want to talk about like, when that chain was broken, like it made the other chains easier to break. Because this was the chain, right? Like, this was like, there's, I'm going to die with this being chained to this addiction. But God broke that chain. And I was able to apply that, what I learned from that, to the other addictions that I had, including pornography. And God broke that chain as well. Um, and he continues to break the chains that, you know, in my life, whatever they may be. Um, and so I wanted to say that, you know, it's, it's been a process of learning to trust God. Like, I think that was one thing why I didn't want to hand that. Like I was just tr- so used to just trusting this drug is all I knew. I didn't know God that much. I didn't really know and had tasted and seen fully yet, but I have now. And, and God has my trust and he has my full allegiance. Like he knows best, right? And so, um, and so I can't even talk about all the, and I want to talk about my parents too, because I think that I started off with all the things that were so negative, but God's amazing healing work has taken place in the parents, in the life of my parents as well, through the healing that's happened in my life. And so that relationship has been restored, and I'm seeing God actively working out in their lives now today. I wanted to close our time by drawing from a story that is very dear to my heart, and every time I read it, I learn something new. And it's the account of the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda, and it's recorded in John's Gospel. And I'll go ahead and read it for you. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, limping, or paralyzed. Now there there was a man there who had been ill for 38 years. And Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there and, and knowing that he already had been in this condition for a long time, said to him, Do you want to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps in in front of me. 
And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. And the reason why this story is so near and dear to my heart is because I was that guy. I was paralyzed and I was stuck on my mat for a very, very long time. And I was stuck in this mindset and this belief that the answer to my problems lied in something other than Jesus. And so maybe that's you today. Maybe you're paralyzed. Maybe there's been something that's happened to you in your life that has kept you from growing and flourishing and, and, and achieving the life that God has for you. And so thinking more about this man's condition and situation, we aren't told on how he became paralyzed. You know, maybe he might have been injured by somebody else. Maybe this was something that was done to him that caused him to be injured. Or maybe this was something that he was born with or that he developed early as a child. We don't know. All that we are told is that he had been suffering and struggling with this for many years to the point where he becomes so desperate enough to believe that in this lie that, this, that the answer to his problems lied within this pool, this body of water. And so when Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? He's not asking him like just physically. He's talking holistically. Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be complete? Do you want to be well? And so I could imagine there's probably this back and forth between Jesus and this man as this man gives him all the excuses and the reasons why he's not healed, right? It's because I can't get into the water. It's because these people step down in front of me and I can't get in. And so I can't be made whole. I can't be healed. And Jesus cuts through all the excuses and he just, he says, that's not what I asked you. I'm asking you, do you want to be made whole? And so Jesus cuts through all the excuses. And I would have to say good excuses, good reasons on why this man was in the condition, the situation that he was in. And so, but however valid they are, Jesus still says, pick up your mat and walk. He doesn't, he, 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 um, he cuts through all the excuses. He says, you don't need that anymore. Your old life, the old ways of thinking, the pain, the guilt, the shame, the anger, the sins, the bitterness, that's not for you anymore. Leave it. Pick up your bed and walk. And so for you, I think about the broad application, for you, maybe you're struggling with a stronghold that's plagued you for many years and it's paralyzed you and it's kept you from growing and thriving in your walk and you're finding it very hard to trust that God is willing and able to deliver you from this. Or maybe you're struggling with something that was a result of something, somebody hurting you and and now you've developed anger and bitterness and resentment, and it's festering deeper than your soul, and it's robbing you from your peace and joy that God offers you. And so whatever may be in your life, Jesus sees it, and he knows it. Just like he knew this paralytic man, he knew how long he'd been suffering and knew that he had been going through, Jesus sees what you're going through, and he knows you're the things that are holding you captive. And I want to be here, I want to say, like, I'm here as a living example that not, not only is God willing to deliver you from your stronghold, but that he's able to. I'm reading, we are told in 2 Tim, Timothy verse one, or chapter 1, verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And I remember in the height of my use when I was using math, and I would come across this verse, and I just remember saying, man, I wish that was true. 
But I'm here to tell you that it is true. I, that it, we are, have a power that is available to us that can give us the ability to be able to live with self-control and with love and not be living in pain and fear. God has given us the power and the ability to be able to do that. And so my encouragement to you would that be, if, God, if, you're, if you're hearing God's voice to you today and he's saying, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be well? My encouragement would to you that you would respond to that. And you would stop making, if you are, if you are making excuses, that he knows, you know, and that you would turn to him and pick up your mat and walk and that you would allow God to make you whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, we are just so in awe, Lord, that you are the God that breaks chains, Lord that you can smash every stronghold that, can, that holds us captive, Lord. And that this is not, your will for us is not to live in fear, Lord, or to live in bondage, Lord, but your, your plan for us is good, Lord, that we would be delivered from anything that is holding us from thriving and glorifying you, Lord. Anything that is keeping us from, from you, Lord, and, and resting in your peace and the assurance that you give so freely, Lord. And so I just pray for for the for the body lord today for 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 my brothers and sisters among among me lord that you would just bless them lord continually lord and and for the person that may have needed to hear that message today lord that you would just grow this in their heart lord that you would just that they would be comforted in knowing that you hear them that you see where they're at lord and that you're not only willing to heal them lord but that you're able to and i pray that you would just continue to work in each person's life here, Lord. We are so thankful for you, Lord, your patience and your mercy and your grace that leads us to repentance, Lord. So thankful for you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.